Welcome to Bay FM, Media Tent. But I, do, I just want to have a look at that hand. I've got your hand side for that motion that you raised. Mm. You happy to talk about that? Yeah, sure. Yeah, great. Okay. Because that's pretty important. All right, everybody. Welcome. Um, Wampy, are we on? Ready to start? Go. Okay, thank you. So, good morning. We're here at Renew Fest today on this beautiful Saturday. We're with Senator Maureen Faruqi, who's an Australian senator for the Greens. She's a New South Wales sen senator. Welcome, Senator Maureen Faruqi. Thank you, Malika. Hello and hello, everyone. It is absolutely lovely to get out of Sydney, if I can say that, and be out here in beautiful Mullum and Byron and... Um, just kind of relax and talk to the community and listen to the community more importantly. So very happy to be here. And we're very lucky to have you here today on Bay FM for Multicultural Nation and for Renew Fest as well. And you're speaking today at Renew Fest. I am, and that's really the reason why I am here. I'm having a conversation with James about making the world a better place, uh, sustainability, the climate crisis, everything that we are passionate about in this part of the world. So you're in Parliament and your portfolios are anti-racism, animal welfare, education, housing and industry. Only a few. I think that would, that's <laughs> enough. I think that's definitely enough to keep you busy. And today we might focus on anti-racism because that's such a, a, a huge issue across, you know, internationally at the moment and has been, you know, obviously always is an issue. And we might talk a little bit about housing as well and perhaps touch on animal welfare. But we might start with anti-racism because on Multicultural Nation we declare that Australia is a multicultural nation and it is indeed a multi multicultural nation and probably has been a multicultural nation since... Uh, colonialism since the uh, James Cook possibly you know landed on the shores in Botany Bay you know really people don't often acknowledge that we started with a multicultural possibly not you know people came here and they've been coming here for 220 something years would you agree I do agree one of the reasons I was attracted to come to Australia about 30 years ago when my husband and I decided to migrate out of Pakistan was this reason that from the outside, we saw Australia as a place where so many different people from around the world had come and made home for themselves. And for me, that was kind of an ideal place to live with people all around the world. Um, but I think the reality of it hit me once I got here and I learned more about the pretty violent colonial history of Australia, the dispossession of First Nations people, and how that continues on to this day. Um, you know, the discrimination, the, the deaths in custody, the over-incarceration. Um, and we haven't really done enough, or could I say we've done very little to address that discrimination. And for me, dealing with it starts with justice for First Nations, self-determination. But more than that, to actually hear the truth, to listen to the truth, and to acknowledge that there is inherent racism in the way our institutions and structures in Australia are set up. And it is sadly that same discrimination and racism that now flows on to other people of color in Australia. And COVID-19 did reveal a lot of massive gaps in inequality in Australia. Um, you know, we saw who was excluded from 
the support that the federal government provided and who was included. And the people who were excluded were mainly people of color. They were migrant workers. They were international students. Um, and there was a lot of racist abuse thrown at Chinese Australians at the start of um, COVID-19. And that continues on to today. Uh, we have seen over the last 20 years the dehumanization um, of refugees and asylum seekers who are people exactly like us, but they're not seen as us. Um, you know, both the political parties, major political parties, have been dog-whistling and really openly um, dehumanizing them and othering them to portray them as someone different to the people who live in Australia. Um, and of course, we've seen the vilification of migrants through our times. You know, somehow migrants like me are at the same time ripping people, Australian people off, Australian, and I say that, um, you know, with inverted commas, of jobs as, as well as welfare. So I think there is a lot of blame to be placed on politicians who do that. There is responsibility to be taken by the media who have also been echoing the sentiments of politicians and, you know, kind of firing the flames of racism. And there is a lot of talk, um, Malika, at the moment of we are in a moment in time. You know, there is the climate crisis moment. There is the sexism and sexual assault moment we're in. There is the healthcare crisis. And I think this is the time to grab all those moments with gusto and not deal with one issue at a time, because these are all interlinked issues. Because I really want to see at the end of the day an Australia which is feminist and anti-racist. And I think this is the time to seriously start talking about it. But that talk starts from acknowledging that there is systemic racism in Australia and then tackling it. And institutional racism, as we've seen, is the country started, as you mentioned, with a dis dispossession and non-inclusiveness. Australia needs to become inclusive with other people's cultures. Mm -hmm. And it's that thing, like, people here, there's a dominant culture. And because of English colonialism, the dominant culture has become that, you know, a hybrid of that culture, which hasn't been inclusive, has it? And we need to, people need to acknowledge, you know, when you speak to people who can't really understand how Australia is a racist country, well, you have to think about that, that paradigm of the dominant culture. And I think that's what some people in Australia struggle with. They don't understand mm -hmm. that because of that dominant culture, that non-inclusive culture, which also people, you know, the original First Nations inhabitants of Australia were, were, were not included. There was no inclusiveness right from the beginning. Yeah. And that legacy has carried on, hasn't it? It's and that dominant culture includes white supremacy. Um, and over the last few years, actually, far-right extremism has increased. It is something that, you know, our security agency, ASIO, acknowledges um, and, and acknowledge that it needs to be dealt with. And so, I mean, that, for me, that's a very scary thing. Um, to see the rise of the far right. We saw two years ago what happened in Christchurch, where, you know, an Australian man murdered 51 Muslims who were peacefully praying. It was horrifying. It, it you was could, couldn't horrifying. imagine. It, it was something that yes. we could not imagine happening Ter a Terrifying terrorist attack, unbelievable. Absolutely, but we in Australia still have not reckoned with that because I can tell you every time I bring up the issue of far right extremism um, in the Senate... I am told, yes, there is far-right extremism and there is far-left extremism, which really just minimize, minimizes 
what we are dealing with. And experts tell us that there isn't a concern about far left extremism in Australia at all. Um, so I think we really have to have more conversations about what we do, because for me, it is, yes, it is about raising the issues, of course, it is about acknowledging them, but more than that, it is about actually dealing with them and making a place here in Australia, which is a country which, you know, is abounds in natural beauty and wonderful people, like I said, from all over the world. And we have the capacity to make it the best place in the world, but we're far from it yet. So you raised a motion in Parliament on the 16th of March 2021 and you acknowledged those terrible terrorist attacks that happened on the 15th of March 2019. So that was the anniversary of that terrible incident uh, where 51 people were killed, innocent Muslims. And you also, the New Zealand Royal Commission inquiry into the attacks confirmed that the massacre was driven by extreme right-wing Islamophobic ideology. And you also mentioned on that motion that Australia has grappled neither with being the country that raised the Christchurch killer because he was an Australian citizen and grew up here, nor with the resurgence of that far-right extremism. You also noted in that motion that it's been 30 years since the publication of the 1991 landmark national inquiry into racist violence, which found that racist attitudes and practices, conscious and unconscious, pervade our institutions, both public and private. And on the whole, public authorities do not respond effectively to reports of racist violence. And I will say that was in 1991. Have we heard much from that report since and has any action really been taken? Well, what we hear from First Nations people and communities is that it hasn't been fully implemented in so many different ways. Because since 1991, there have been more than 450 more deaths in custody. So obviously, it hasn't been implemented. You know, there's more inquiries that happen. But, you know, why don't we just implement what the report suggested? And why don't we implement? The answer to that question is surely that we don't value those lives as much as other lives in Australia. Um, so, you know, it's, people say, oh, it's a complex issue. Well, not really. It is a simple issue of equality. It is, it is an issue of, you know, First Nations self-determination. We are on their land. It is stolen land. I don't understand why it's so hard for people um, We're know, all migrants yeah, here. Exactly. That's right. And you know, and we we've we've been welcomed, you know, after colonization. The people who've come here, we have been welcomed uh, warmly by First Nations people. Um so we can I mean from my perspective, we can never have social or environmental justice without racial justice, and we can never have racial justice without First Nations justice. So this is the basic bottom line where we have to start from. And I just will note as well that um, part the last part of that motion that the Senate acknowledged the International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, which is on the 21st of March, and calls for the Australian government to reject and challenge racism in mm. all its forms. Mm. Now, I'll just bring up, we've had a recent um, situation where I think really highlights that, like you said, that institutional prejudice and racism against non-white or mm. we have to say non-white Australians with, as you mentioned COVID-19 and that crisis, the people from India, the Australian citizens from India who are not being allowed to return to their own country. Absolutely disgusting that this announcement came out at midnight saying that people from India, Australian citizens who try and come to Australia to escape death pretty much and disease would face jail time. I mean, 
who who in their right mind comes up with these sorts of policies it is a disgraceful and racist policy there is no other way to describe it i mean we should actually be sending planes there to bring people home australian citizens and permanent residents as well yes um and and why i say this is a racist policy because we we kind of didn't do this when it was rife when covid was rife in the uk and the us and we shouldn't have done it then and we shouldn't be doing it now and there's been a little bit of backtracking because of the backlash at the moment but still you know we still are a week away from any planes going to india to bring back um australian citizens and permanent residents are not even being talked about and there is hardly any talk of providing the people of india also with the resources and the healthcare that they need um to deal with covid in their own country so i mean one of the richest countries in the world has a responsibility to support other countries um and you know why are those countries in this state it does come down to colonization the theft i mean i come from pakistan so i know firsthand the impacts of colonization in that part of the world um you know the exploitation and the theft of wealth that went on for 200 years is what's left those nations in the state that they are in so you know we have a debt that we owe to those countries and we should be paying that in full and now is the time to do it yes and as you said you know uh, india is part of the colony you know which australia is also a part of there is an extra responsibility there you'd think So is there anything you else you'd like to speak about on that topic of anti-racism is are there any other ideas mm-hmm. you have any other ways you think that Australia might be able to address these issues of inequality Well because as we said it's a structural institution a systemic issue that also then plays out in ca- you know what's called casual day-to-day racism So we we can't do one thing or the other to to deal with this we have to do many things together and the the one thing that i am pushing the federal government on is to provide funding for a large scale national anti racism strategy and plan um and that funding was provided 5 years ago but since then we have seen nothing from the federal government so this has to be uh, an anti racism program that is actually a responsibility of the federal government um so that that's kind of a start um but i think there needs to be more attention and more resources put into extreme right wing um and the rise of that and so that needs to be dealt with and i do think that our parliaments actually need to change as well our parliaments need to start reflecting the rich diversity of communities that live on our streets and suburbs at the moment our parliament is dominated by white men um and you know we've seen a little bit of conversation around that because of the sexual assault allegations and the sexism and the harassment that goes on in the highest office um in Australia but it, that's not enough really unless our parliaments represent the people who live here is very difficult to change them because those experiences aren't really talked about and reflected in the discussions and the debate um in that parliament and that's up to us i mean we still live in a democracy uh it's up to us to make that change but to make that change is not going to be easy and that's why conversations like these are really important yes so we might move on to some other areas of your portfolio housing which at the moment on the in the northern rivers mm. byron bay has become one of the rich, you know richest areas in australia with the most expensive housing this is probably eventuated in the last few years and there's a huge underclass in this area that is struggling with affordability there's mm. a huge underclass all over australia really because 
housing prices have escalated, mm. particularly in the last decade. Uh, housing affordability, we call it affordable, it's housing unaffordability mm. because it's becoming so unaffordable, particularly for renters and buyers as well. So there, you've, uh, but there's another motion that you've raised or you've mentioned here, sorry, you've mentioned um, around housing on the 26th of March because the uh, moratoriums, eviction moratoriums mm. were lifted mm. on the 26th of March. So again, COVID's put that issue under the spotlight. Mm. It's put the inequalities, people who are marginalised, people who can't access services or have lost their jobs. So what, would, what would you like to say about all of that? Yeah, look, without a roof over your head, without a secure place to call home, nothing else in life kind of falls into place, really. Uh, you need a secure, safe place to live in before you can get, get other things in life, get a job or, you know, uh, provide security for your family. In Australia and, you know, many parts of the world, housing has become a commodity. Uh, it's not seen as a basic human right. It's, you know, housing is a market. Well, it's not really. It, it's something that everyone should have. Um, and decades ago, federal governments did have a role to play in housing. So what basically I want to do and the Greens want to do is for the federal government to make a massive investment in building public and community housing. Because that's what's been happening in Australia over the last two decades. Not enough have been built, and the ones that we had have been sold, again, for private profit. So this, this you know, never-ending quest for making profit for a few people who donate to the major parties is also a crux of the problem. So, but it's not just providing public housing. It, it is also about rental market, the, you know, the, the rents that people pay. So, so housing is unaffordable. My, my two kids in their 20s say they will never be able to buy a house. But also, it's very hard to, to rent a, a good, uh, you know, affordable place. So I think we need much better rental laws that provide longevity of uh, rental in, in one spot, where pe people can treat, whether it's a rental house or not, where people can treat it as their home. You know, there shouldn't be rent increases willy-nilly. So there should be uh, basically a cap on when rents can be increased and by how much they can be increased. But I think, again, the, the real root cause of all of this is that housing is not seen as a human right. It is seen as something to make profit for. And that's what's happened with negative gearing, with the capital gains tax discount. There is, it's become a speculation and people investing in it to make money. And that's not what housing is about. Housing almost underpins the Australian economy these days. And we've seen, you know, in, in the last couple of years when there's been these fiscal stimulation packages, it's always based on housing and mm -hmm. stimulating the housing market. And as you said, housing's a basic human need. It should not be privatised. It should not be something that's underpinning our, underpinning mm -hmm. our economy. You know, really, it's, it's, it's just so out of touch. And housing security often leads to... Uh, you know, better better mental health outcomes mm -hmm. for people. You know, the the lack of proper housing is does is part of the mental health problem. Absolutely, housing, education from early childhood education through to school to TAFE and university are universal basic services like healthcare, and they should be treated as such. This is an investment that the government puts in our communities and in, in you know in our nation as a whole. These are not costs, really, like the government sees them as. These are not um, services to make profit from. That's right. And 
um, in, on the northern rivers, you know, where I think we've got some some movement from the council here to try and improve outcomes. Do you would you agree that maybe perhaps at a local level that housing should be managed with, within councils? I mean, housing is a responsibility for three for the three levels of governments. But I know, having worked in two local councils, I know that with time how much cost-cutting has been happening at councils and, you know, and shifting cost-cutting and then shifting more and more responsibility onto councils as well. So I would like to see if there is more responsibilities that council ta takes on housing, then it has to come with the equivalent resources for those councils. Um, but I also do know, and often it's a cliche to say that councils are the closest to their communities, but they actually are. You know, the councillors live in the areas that they represent. Often in regional areas, council officers as well live in the areas that they represent. So they're very accountable to the community and they do have the pulse of the community. Um, so I think local governments should be involved, but with resources being provided to them. People often forget that state housing, public housing, housing commission was actually a resource for state government workers in the mm -hmm. 70s and in the 60s. It was housing that was available for police, for teachers, for people that were employed by the local by, by the state government. Um, those models, you know, they were they've become now housing's in, in a sense become a bit of a waste ground for people who are marginalised, people that are struggling, and there's no support. I mean, it's a really broken model, isn't it? Oh, it's completely messed up in a broken system. So our plan for, uh, for us, the Greens, we've been push pushing really hard for one million um, public homes to be built over the next 20 years um, to basically, because there are hundreds of thousands of people on waiting lists at the moment, and that might not even be enough. But the federal government has to stump up the investment to build those one million homes over the next 20 years to make sure that every single person has a home and people, and, and especially women, it's a huge issue in secure housing for women and older women um, who don't have enough super and don't have enough investment. Um, and we know that for domestic and family violence, you know, that's a huge issue as well when women who are fleeing domestic violence, often with kids in tow, um, don't have a place where they can live. Um, they their fear of leaving the perpetrator. So Absolutely. at so many levels, it is such a vital issue that needs to be addressed. And, you know, in COVID, we saw that things that we had never imagined could happen did happen with the stroke of a pen. Free childcare. Childcare became free for a few months. You know, evictions ban were put into place as well for a few months. So if governments have the will... They can do this. These things are not inevitable. These are decisions that are being made in the place that I work in. And, you know, we, we will be pushing for these decisions to be made for the communities, for the environment, not for the big donors. Yes, and the Liberals did start acting like a government of a social democracy. They did. They really they, started acting in a, a very different way, didn't they? they and, and as you said, totally. Australia is one of the richest mm -hmm. Western mm -hmm. liberal democracies in the world with one of the highest tax rates mm. in the world. Mm. And, you know, what are we giving back for, for what we pay in taxes and such? That's what's, what's yeah, come from that. Absolutely. And I've met so many people since that time who say to me, we always thought Greens policies were like pie in the sky and could never happen. But we have now seen that actually they can happen. So, you know, that's a good thing that has come out of that. So there's more people kind of inspired and willing to, to push for and become more active to have policies that, you know, are more socially and environmentally just. And people should be aware, you know, about paying taxes, that 
they aren't there to benefit just business people. They're not there to benefit the rich. You know, that contribution that we make to our society is there to benefit everybody our, and our children's futures as well. It's a very important issue. So we might move on just quickly to animal welfare because that's, you know, obviously something very special to people in the Northern Rivers. We have a lot of area, a lot of land, animal welfare rights people here. What's happening with the animal elf welfare, animal welfare issue at the moment, Maureen? Yeah. Something that is very close to my heart. Um, but uh, sad to report that there's hardly any voices in the federal parliament, any voices for animals. Uh, we did, um, when I started in 2018, the, the first bill that I got passed through the Senate was for banning live export. Right. Um, so we did get that through because there were a few more voices, but it didn't pass the lower house. So that's a campaign that's front and center of my campaigns. And just yesterday I was... Um, um, you know, in, in the Tweed and in Chindra, and we are trying to push back on the largest, shamefully, what is being touted as the largest precinct for greyhound racing in Australia, which is going Here to be Here in the Northern Rivers. That's Here unbelievable. In the Northern Rivers, it is unbelievable. I mean, racing and gambling is such a toxic mix, uh, not just for animals, but of our community as well. And there is absolutely, I know that there is no social license for greyhound racing um, in Australia. But again, because it makes a buck for the government and they have their networks in the gambling industry that it goes on. Um, but I think the only way that change happens is when communities push for change. And I do know that there is so much compassion for animals in our community. Thank you. Well, we've been speaking with Senator Maureen Faruqi. Say that again. Speaking to Senator Maureen Faruqi, who's an Australian senator for New South Wales for the Greens. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful to have you here on Bay FM on Multicultural Nation. Thank you so much, Malika. Always beautiful to be with you. <laughs> it's a wrap. <laughs> oh, ask questions. <laughs> well, have we got some questions here from the audience? Yes. Question, Julie. So it's not always the fault of the politicians. Mm -hmm. There was a big campaign, um, like a, a counter-marketing campaign, actually a friend of mine worked for us, so we had a big fight over mm -hmm. that, um, to, in support of the greyhound industry. Where did that go wrong? Like, was mm -hmm. that um, voted for in Parliament or was that the people's vote? Like, why didn't that get through? So the ban on the greyhound racing did get through. We had legislation to do that. Um, but I think what happened after was that the Labour Party, so it is, politicians do take blame for it. And, you know, Mike Baird basically saw from the Special Commission of Inquiry report that this industry was not at all feasible, that you could not have animal welfare and greyhound racing together. He saw that evidence, and I think he made a decision on conviction that this could not happen. And it came on the back of years of campaigning outside within the communities, and I had been involved in that campaign. But what happened after was that the Labour Party, it's the first campaign I actually had seen the New South Wales Labour Party run, started a campaign to overturn oh, that really? ban. Yes. Um, and they got together with the media shock jocks. Um, and I think there was so much pressure. I mean, it took a few scalps. Mike Baird resi resigned soon after, the, after announcing that he would overturn the ban. And the lockout laws. He, he yeah, exactly, exactly. So I think it's a little bit of political cowardice. Um, and a little bit of um, also, you know, kind of political, what should I say, 
grabbing that moment for the Labour Party to join up with, you know, some of the people who support gambling yeah, for their political opportunism. So cowardice and opportunism was what happened. And, and Absolutely, the money and money talks. Unfortunately, money talks. But I think the one of and you've always got to look at some hope and positive from anything. The greyhounds who um, you know are, leave the industry, they're being um, adopted at record rates. So you know, so at least we have that awareness in the community that this is a terrible, rotten industry. It and was exposed. Yeah, it was it? exposed. Yeah, it, it, it was exposed, and and you know. Cruelty. Yeah, the ban, you know, overturning the ban was a terrible thing. But what the Liberal government and Gladys Berejiklian did after that was actually inject money into the industry as well. Because, you know, we had reports to say that they were kind of on their way out. Um, people weren't going to races anymore because people see that this is cruel. Um, but injecting money into it now has given them another leash of life. My marketing friend, she... Mm. she Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, it's not. It's it, no, it is, but it's not humane. Like, like full greyhound racing kills hundreds of dogs. Just last year, more than two hundred dogs died in Australia on track, and we don't even know how many die off track. The ones who are not fast enough are just killed. Mm. Like, I have a greyhound. I adopted a greyhound after oh, they overturned yeah, the ban. My beautiful Cosmo, and you see how they've been treated. Like, it took two years for him to get comfortable. In, in our home, and they're such gentle, gentle, the most beautiful animals. So, you know, running them uh, for profit and then killing them when they kind of get injured. There were 3,000 who got injured just last year. When everything was shut down, greyhound racing and horse racing was going on. Continued, that yeah. tells you the power of that industry, really, yeah. Mm. Has there been a time since colonisation that um, there wasn't racism? Mm. Like, to what degree does the leadership really kind of give a voice or shape that? Like, mm. like I say, Gough Whitlam or Bob Bork, was racism less? Yeah, I, I mean, ov obviously the, the treatment of First Nations has been pretty horrendous throughout. Paul Keating. From colonisation to now, yeah. to be really frank. Um, you know, but I do think, like, like I said, when I came here 30 years ago, I didn't feel um, the, the, I guess, the heat that I feel now of racism. I meant to talk and about in the, the community as well. Yeah, not just me, Donald but Trump, others Trump, as well. Trump. Yeah. Can we, yeah. should we add on any more? Do you want to I go? think we have we to go. go. <laughs> yeah, I meant to talk <laughs> about, <laughs> about Trumpism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, Can thank only you, cover Emma. So thank you. Yeah, sure. Wampi, are you recording this? Great. Terrific. Thank you. Mm. Can you? It, we should put it on the microphone because yeah, then we can, we can. Yeah, mm. we can play it on mm. radio. It's small. Hi. Hey. You introduced the um, first ever bill to decriminalise abortion in New South Wales, mm. and you won the closure of pregnancy discrimination mm. loopholes. Why do you think it took so long to decriminalise abortion in Australia? Mm. That is a very good question. And as soon as I started in um, state parliament in 2013, there was a question on my mind as well. Um, and I think there are a number of reasons. I think no one had the courage to bring that up. 
they because there are there are parties who are captured by um, you know anti-choice politicians, um, so they fear that there was some level of fear that things could go wrong and they could get even worse for women. But from where I sat and the women and the doctors and lawyers that I was speaking to, from my perspective, things couldn't get any worse. I mean, yes, abortion and pregnancy termination were accessible to people living in the big cities on the East Coast um, at a price. It was very expensive. But for those living in regional rural areas, there was absolutely nothing. They had to travel you know, kilometers and kilometers to get to a clinic uh, where they could actually get um, that health service. Uh, in their own towns, they, I've been to, I was in Albury so many times over that campaign. There was one clinic in Albury. There was a doctor that flew in, I think, once um, in two weeks a month from Melbourne to provide that service. And every time she was there, there was a gauntlet of anti-choice people outside harassing women. So from my perspective, things weren't okay when you have a law that doesn't unambiguously um, tell you that it is not a crime. It was a crime in New South Wales. And how I, I just thought, how could it be a crime in New South Wales? So it took um, a lot of um, five, I think six years to run a community campaign with communities across New South Wales. And of course, we stood on the shoulders of women who had been doing this since the 70s. Um, so what we did in the end was make it inevitable for the Liberal government to make this change. And I think that was a good example of how when communities work together and just don't take no for an answer, that things do change. And on behalf of all women, thank you very much. <laughs> it was my privilege. It was my privilege. And it's not just me. It was thousands of people working across New South Wales. It really was. Okay, we might run. Thank you so much, Maureen. Thank it's you wonderful. so much. It's been such a privilege. Thank you, everyone.